Welcome to GRIT, the Real Estate Growth Mindset Podcast, hosted by Brian Charlesworth, founder of Sisu. Sisu provides growth automation software for real estate. You'll hear stories from real estate thought and technology leaders, team owners, and brokers on how they grew their business in a rapidly changing industry. You'll learn how to transform your brokerage and teams into a high-performing and analytics-driven business so you have a new, durable, competitive advantage against disruption in your market. So let's get right into it. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Grit Podcast. I'm Brian Charlesworth, the founder of CSU and uh, your host of the, of the Grit Podcast, and uh, excited for our show today. I think I've been trying to get this guest on for about a year now. And, uh, you know, he was going to be on about a month ago, and then I ended up getting COVID and had to cancel on him, which was a difficult thing for me to do. So anyway, super excited, though. We are with Guy Gal today, and Guy is the CEO of Side Inc., and also the founder. And, um, you know, I'm super impressed with what he's done there. I got to go in and see their operation about a year and a half ago, probably, and, you know, it was, it was a really cool experience. Number one, their offices are amazing. Their team was super great to me that day. So I enjoyed spending time with them. Mm-hmm. And then Guy took me out and we went on a little walk uh, around the neighborhood. And we went to that park. What's the name of that park, Guy? South Park. South Park. I should, how do I forget that, right? So, <laughs> so, so we went to South Park and he's like, hey, you know, here's the partner at, um, you know, Benchmark, and, you know, just all the top, top VCs. So anyway, it was kind of, kind of a fun experience, but really let me know, you know, the value of uh, being in that world that you're in down there where, you know, all these guys like firsthand. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, um, Guy has built multiple businesses. We'll talk about that today. His most recent is Side Inc., which is a new real estate tech brokerage. And we'll get into more of that. Maybe Guy would call it something different. So you're here <laughs> totally, to hear that. <laughs> totally call it something different. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Guy, um, anything you want to add to that? And thank you for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to see. Uh, uh, I'm glad you're back in good health and in good spirits. I love seeing the, the CSU dashboard behind you over there you know, pretty and useful as always. You know, that's, that's my wife's business. So it lets me always see, you know, her growth and what's going on there, which is awesome. I love that. That's <laughs> really great. I'm sure she doesn't love it as much, but I, I actually, actually, surprisingly, she loves it. So <laughs> that's great. You know, well, people, people, don't, people don't love accountability, but they love positive accountability. That's what I've learned. So if it's yeah. all about helping them reach their goals, it's another story Then. Yeah, when it's not because accountability can be perceived as punitive, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Punishment. Like, oh, exactly. I don't want to be accountable. Yeah, that's going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, it does come across as, you know, it's a negative thing versus positive, which is why I call it positive accountability. But yeah, you could, you could write a book on that. Yeah, I, I actually plan to. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys all witness. As of today, I'm, I'm starting my book. Brian's starting a book, Positive Accountability. I love it. So, so anyway, Guy, you know, maybe just give us a little bit more about your background. Uh, I know you started a few other businesses um, and have built some other companies, but not in real estate. So I'd kind of like to know... Like why real estate and how did the evolution of that happen? Naturally, organically, in a way that was not very deliberate, but that's how most things happen in life. Yes. I was always a problem solver. I saw a problem. I was compelled to try and fix it. Felt like I knew better. I don't know. Hard to understand exactly why I was that way, but that's, always something I've been. I like to solve complex problems, especially when they affect people that I care about or that I think are deserving or that I feel are being exploited or mistreated. I also grew up as a bully's bully. I I was that kid in school who came to the rescue of kids that were being pushed around for no other reason than maybe somebody else thought they looked funny or had an odd name or yeah whatever the case might be and that has a 
big impact in how you, the decisions you make in your life. And of course, the decisions you make in your life are what make your life what it is. Uh, so in college, I started my first company and uh, it was because I stopped, you know, I had an itch that nobody else was scratching. I figured might as well scratch it for myself. And a little weekend project became something a lot bigger with hundreds of employees. Uh, you know, many years later, I was like, how did that happen? This is not what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. So I made the very hard decision to move beyond and past it and left that company uh, in the very capable hands of my friends and business partners. Uh, it took a bit of a sabbatical to figure out what was next. And long story short, I was very fortunate to be invited to participate as an entrepreneur in residence at one of the world's best venture funds uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area called Matrix. You know, they've been around since the early 80s, well before the movie with the same name. Uh, they're a top 10 by performance fund, really highly celebrated. And I was incredibly flattered that they invited me to come on and be that fellow and it was with the explicit intention of figuring out life's work brian i was like okay i i need to stop doing accidental things i want to be more deliberate about what i do next i want to find life's work i want to find something i can spend 20 years doing and feel great having spent all that time doing it even if it's hard or complicated or heart-wrenching it doesn't matter i just want to do something worthwhile and I thought I could figure that out in two weeks. I thought, oh, well, two weeks, two months, I'll figure it out. It took nearly two years to figure that out. It was quite a process. And at the end of that process was the beginning of SIDE. And SIDE started five years ago. And SIDE is my life's work. This is the thing that I'll be doing forever, as long as it's possible for me to still be effective uh, in terms of representing and advancing the interests of SIDE's partners, right? The agents that work with us, the in the, the independent brokerage owners, the, the teams, um, then I'll keep doing that. But that's what I'm doing today. And the way that it all came together was I, as a consumer, had a not so great relationship uh, experience rather with real estate. And then several years later, had a really good one and tried to, and this was during the time when I was thinking, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, top of mind. And I asked myself, why was this experience really good? And that one, not good at all. What's with the inconsistency. I initially gave that credit to the brokerage of the agent who had helped me with that, with that new transaction. Yeah. That person got really frustrated because, uh, you know, it helped them. We were friends. So they were a lot more forthcoming, but his whole thing was people always give my brokerage credit for the work that I do. They had nothing to do with the experience that you just went through. That was all me. That was my creativity, my care, my experience, uh, my expertise, my money, my time, my business. It's what I do. But you're giving all the credit to this company here. Um, That has a name on a sign. Yeah, that has a name (laughs) on a sign that I pay a quarter million dollars a year to. And I feel like I get very little value in return. They audit my files and they get in my way when I try to be creative. Um, and that agent you worked with many years ago, they actually are part of the same company. That company owns multiple brands and that's one more of them. And that agent actually is a part-time agent, but you didn't realize that as a buyer because they came in and told you of how much business the office does. Mm-hmm. And they showed you listings that other agents in the office were responsible for. And that's how our industry works. All of these brokerages take credit for the work that agents like myself do, and they use that to make it possible for agents who don't know what they're doing to take business away from me that I should be doing. And I am so frustrated. And one day, one day I will start my own brokerage. I will have my own company and I will no longer be frustrated. I will no longer be annoyed by it all. That was the magical sort of aha moment that started side because my response to him was, well, why, why this one day thing? Why not now? Yeah. Why not now? What's holding you back from doing that now? You're in a great position. You're doing, you know, 70 units a year in sales. Like 
40 plus million in volume. You're clearing a million GCI. You're, you know what you're doing. You're great. And his whole thing was, well, I do run my own business now, but operating a brokerage is different. I don't want to operate a brokerage. I want to own the business that I'm running. I don't want to take on all the back office. I don't want to be legally responsible for it all. It's really daunting. I feel like it's been set up to make it impossible for me to actually fulfill my aspiration of independence. Mm-hmm. And that is when the light bulb went off because here was somebody who had spent time, money, energy trying to solve this problem for themselves and couldn't for no other reason than the way things had been set up to create a barrier to fulfilling that ambition, that aspiration. And what I so that was the first thing I recognized. The second thing I recognized was that he was not an agent, he was an entrepreneur who happened to be an agent. Yeah. He was actually running a business and he was carrying the cost of sales. He was carrying the cost of marketing. He was carrying the cost of all the revenue. Uh, he was responsible for winning all the business, servicing all the business. And he had to go off and hire two people full time to fill in the operational gaps for his brokerage. Because seven units a year, they just couldn't service him in a sophisticated enough way, fast enough, because he's not the average agent doing three deals a year. How, many, how many was he doing at that time? 70 units a year. 70 units. Yeah, it's a lot of units. And, and what, what is he doing now? Do you mind sharing? You know, I don't know. Um, he, he actually is in Canada, so he doesn't work with side. Oh, okay. We're not, okay. We are not there yet. Ironically, yeah. but okay. I, I, I imagine he's probably still stuck in and around that number. Hey, um, hey I assumed, I, Guy, that that was like one of your... One of your companies, oh, I wish. you call them companies versus teams or brokerages, but. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll use it as a segue to give you that example real quick. That's, that was the, you know, aha moment for the business. His whole thing was, I want to own my company. I don't want to operate a brokerage in order to do it. My whole thing was, well, why doesn't somebody create an invisible brokerage that works for you, the agent? It's your business at the end of the day. You own the business. It's your brand. It's distinct and custom to you. You hire an invisible brokerage to come in and do all of the back office work, the way broker of record, a managing broker, an auditor, a a compliance officer, deal doctor, a secretary, a clerk would do. But it's delivered to you as a service. It's delivered over software. uh, And it's delivered white label. So it's serving into your company, your brand, and no compromises at all whatsoever. And his response to that was, how does that not exist yet? I wish that thing existed. And if it did exist, that's exactly what I would then use to go off and establish myself um, and take ownership of, of the business that I'm already running without having to operate the brokerage. That was the beginning of side. Uh, but it was another eight months still, Brian, before we started the company. Because we were really keen on making sure there were no false signals, no false positives, no false negatives. Mm-hmm. We really wanted to find someone who was so compelled by the idea of this that they volunteered themselves to do it with us, as opposed to selling them in, right? Like motivating them or compelling them. Um, and that, that was Michelle Kim. Michelle Kim, when we first met her, was doing $23 million a year in sales in San Francisco was seemingly already tapped out as far as capacity because, you know, agents don't sell houses. They sell time, right? That's right. Uh, And she's got three kids and she's doing all that work, which is a full-time job in and of itself. And that just meant that she was referring a whole bunch of her business to other agents because she couldn't take it. So Side's very first partner was her. And it was our first order of business was let's transform Michelle into a team because she was an individual. Mm. So that was the first thing we did. Uh, and then a year later, Michelle was, was 56 million volume. Now this is the fifth year of Michelle, of our partnership with Michelle. Today, Michelle is no longer just the Michelle, she's no longer just Michelle Kim, the agent. She's no longer Michelle Kim group, the team. She is actually Mosaic Real Estate. They're 12 producing agents. They'll close over 300 million in volume this year. That's awesome. Five years later. And it's a wonderful, amazing thing to have gotten to be a part of uh, aside, right? To come in there and actually 
create that brand and in, uh, in partnership with that agent to establish it, to help grow it, to put a plan around it, to execute into it, and then to watch everyone uh, uh, succeed and make that progress. It's the most fulfilling thing in the world. And I'm excited to do another 15, 20 years of it because it's, it's, it's already been five, uh, but there's a lot more left to do. But that that is how Side came to be five years ago. This year we'll close well over 20 billion for our partners, for those partner companies, you know, the brands you see here behind me. Yep. Uh, uh, next year it should be over 40. Okay, so you have, you're in three states today, I believe, and you have around 400 partners or brokerage companies. Over, that... over, oh yeah, over 400 partner companies. So 75% of those used to be top producing agents or teams inside of somebody else's brokerage. And yep. we've helped them create their own company and go live without having to operate the brokerage because that's what we do. 25% of those partners you are independents. They were already fully independent. They hire a site to come in and take over their back office and unconstrain them and get them to be a bit more sophisticated and consistent about their distribution and marketing efforts so that over time they get to start growing the company again. So that's that. And then across those 400 companies, it's well over 3,000 agents today. Okay. So congratulations on your growth and your success. Um, what, uh, like you guys, you're the first that lets a team or a broke independent brokerage, I believe that's really who your primary uh, partners are. Definitely a top producing agents, teams, and indies. Yeah. So, so you let them come in and they brand their own business. Um, I, I'm really interested in this because this, this is very close to home with me and what we're doing at CISU. Yeah. But I know you guys have targeted really top producing agents and teams and independent brokerages. It's the exact same people we work with, right? So. Yeah. Like, why is that? Why do you believe that teams, independent brokerages, like that's the future? And and I know, like from your perspective, I'm really interested to hear this because, uh, you know, you're coming in and and really making a play against that traditional brokerage, if you will. So just uh, just I, I really want to get your thoughts on the future and like why why are teams and and independent brokerages like why is that? The direction that things seem to be moving. I mean, if you talk to, if I talk to most leaders in this industry, they're saying, you know, teams are the future of the industry, right? Right. And that's because teams are actually the past too. Uh, it's just that in the past, teams were effectively organized into small boutiques and then the big conglomerates came in and uh, acquired them all and consolidated the industry and created these monolith companies and brands that as they grew, unlike the boutique, like local boutique model, the hyper-local ownership of small offices that were serving into a particular community, those one-size-fits-all type conglomerates, the way that they define service level was to the average producing agent at the, on the roster, which happens to be an agent doing less than three deals a year. And so anyone that was able to be more successful than that immediately wasn't getting a service from the brokerage that was designed to meet their specific needs. Mm -hmm. 30 units is very different than a three units. And so that's when agents being entrepreneurs first started to take it upon themselves to form into their, into teams because they recognize that the only way to perform at that level of volume and to be able to meet the demand that the market was sending their way because they're such they're so good at their service that they had to organize into teams and in that way have more leverage and more time to service more business and fill in the operational gaps that exist in the relationship between them and their brokerage because they break the mold. They break the three units a year mold. Yeah. Um, and brokerages are designed to serve into that mold because that's where they make the most money. And that's where the average agent actually happens to be. And it so happens that 
over 70% of the transactions done nationally are done by part-timers, right? So that's the incentive structure. You're in, you're, you as a big brokerage are incentivized to work with the most number of agents that will pay you the highest fee per split. And that typically means part-time and casuals. So you're not actually designed to take care of the team. That's what the team is forming in the first place. Sai just saw that that was already happening. We looked out and said, look what's happening in this industry. It's set up to support an individual part-time agent and to prop them up. That's what, it, that's what everybody is set up to do. Every single company is set up to do that. That's their ideal. That's what they prefer. Nobody is actually designed in a purpose-built way for this smaller segment of agent that we believe over time will take up more share because they deliver a better service. They create more value in the transaction. And that over long periods of time is what wins. It's not capital innovation or you know consolidation or impossibly um, onerous contracts. Uh, between brokerages and agents, what wins out at the end of the day is people creating real value for other people. And top producers do that and teams help them deliver that with more consistency at a, at a greater scale. So we just saw that happening, Brian, and we said something needs to exist that is built for this and not for that. And at yeah. that time, there was nothing like, nothing had ever been attempted like that before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you guys have kind of built this reputation, like as this up and coming brokerage, you're only in three states, like what's involved for you to get into more states? Because I don't, I don't think your challenge is getting these teams to come, come into side. I think your challenge is maybe a little bit more, how do we get expand side into different markets? So the, the, the challenge is not, is not us finding willing top producing agents, teams, and indies who want to fulfill a lifelong aspiration to actually establish their own company and get to own that and have the upside of that asset value without having to take on the burden of the back office and the brokerage. That's at the challenge. That demand is already inherent. It's already late. It's there. Yes. Seeking what we're doing. And that's in part why we're only in three states because we've had so much business to service in the, the, in California and to a smaller degree now, Texas and Florida, since we entered last year during COVID, that it's already drinking from a fire hose and we're struggling to keep up with all of that. And so we haven't had the wherewithal to be able to turn our attention, say, okay, let's distribute this to other markets and help uh, other agents and teams and indies do the same. But earlier this year, we raised a whole bunch of additional capital and we have exchanged a bunch of that capital for more awesome people on the team. And we've dedicated them to distributing the future that is side, right, to national expansion. And in that way, uh, we're able to now make that progress. And in the new year, we'll be launching in 15 new states that we weren't in before. Okay. So the growth was probably much faster than you expected. You had way more partners coming in in each state. So just servicing those partners was taking all of your bandwidth. Exactly. You raised more capital, which, I mean, we should point out, Guy, that you you did that at a two and a half billion dollar valuation. So that's that's impressive. I mean. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. One second. So, you know, I think something, you know, it's mostly real estate people that listen to this, but there are a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this as well. And, you know, I'd love to hear more about just that, that process of how you raised your different rounds of capital and at which point, and I think you could bring a lot of advice to, to those entrepreneurs looking yeah. to go out and build a business like that. Yeah. Like the most important thing when you build a business is asking yourself, does this deserve to exist? Is it going to create more value than it ultimately will capture? Because it has to. If you don't create more value than you're going to capture, there's no point. Don't create one more of the same. If it already exists, the world doesn't need another one. The world didn't need one more of the same brokerage, right? It had all of that. What it needed was 
an invisible white label brokerage platform. We needed a company to come in and commoditize the brokerage brand and 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 reveal that it's all emperor's new clothing and they're actually, you know, and 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 that it's actually the boutique brand that's most valuable, not the big giant monolith. So you have to ask yourself that question and answer that in definitive and be really intellectually honest about that. You have to have conviction about it because if you don't, especially when you go out to raise capital, you're never going to be able to do it because investors sniff that out more than anything. You need to make sure that you're addressing a market that's large enough to be investable in the first place. Investors think about that as, hey, can you create a company that will get to at least $50 million in revenue in five years? You know, I, I recently did a round and I, I think they've kind of increased that from 50 million to 100 million. Uh, you know, it only goes up, right? Uh, yeah, like the mindset that I think the mindset has moved, shifted up in the aspect from what you know, I The difference between 50 million and 100 million for a quote unquote successful venture backed company is 12 months. Like, right? Like, if you're at a, if you're in year five doing fifty million in revenue, the expectation of the investors who put money into your business at that level at that point is that next year you're doubling to a hundred again. So it only gets harder now, which is to say that raising capital means signing up for a very particular thing. It's you saying that you're going to go out and look to build a generational company that lasts the test of time. That can be uh, entrenched forever and can create a new kind of value that did not exist before. Uh, what I like to refer to as creating a meaningful enterprise, right? As opposed to just a financially sound one. Um, yes. yes. And, and, and a lot of investors will invest in companies that don't have that potential or that ambition because they know that this company maybe we'll only raise X amount of dollars and then sell for X times five uh, to another company. That's a good enough return for them. But the kind of investors that side has at the table are, are legacy investors. They're legendary investors. They're the ones that only want to put money into companies of consequence that do end up establishing and lasting forever. I don't recall. Was Matrix one of those? If you've been enjoying Grit, please help us continue to grow the channel by leaving a five-star review and sharing it with a friend. Now back to Grit. Yes. Yes. Okay, I thought so. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Matrix, uh, Trinity, which is the money behind, back in the day, LoopNet and DotLoop and Hightower, VTS, things like that. Uh, Sapphire, which of course is... Paul Levine, the ex-president CEO of Trulia, is the general partner there. And then our latest board partner is Rahul from Kotu, which is one of the top three new tech IPO underwriters. That's the the fund. And then we have our wonderful independent um, director, who is Clelia Peters, whose family owns one of the largest boutiques in New York. And she was the founder of... uh, fund called Metaprop and just uh, an awesome investor in her own right. But our seed round, our first round of financing was really hard, right? It, it took four months. I had to fly to New York and spend six hours with Clelia to get a $25,000 investment from her because back then prop tech stuff, real estate wasn't obvious. It wasn't quote unquote hot. It wasn't something that people were really interested in. Compass had just raised a bunch of money. It was very easy to lump the two of us together, even though we're a very different business, right? Yeah. Like they're a lot more similar to a Cobalt banker. Well, right? I, I actually had people lump us into side and Compass. I'm like, how? <laughs> oh, like, what are you doing? Yeah, you know, yeah. So, uh, so the, the thing I want to convey here is our seed round, our first one was really, really hard. You know, we had like 30 plus pitches before we got a lead investor, and that was 8VC, also prolific real estate investors. Uh, and great, they gave us that life we needed. And then five months later, Matrix came in and led the Series A, because Matrix only does Series A's. Right? That's, uh-huh. they're, they're very disciplined, but great. That was an easy round. We didn't talk to anybody. Uh, we got it done real quick. The next round, the Series B, 
that was three years into come into Side's life. So it was two years ago. Over 30 venture funds passed on us, Brian. Yeah. So I, I, th- I think that's the side people don't see. You know, no. most people think, oh, yeah, they just raised all this capital. You know, guy's got this unfair advantage or whatever, right? He sits in the backyard. He's friends with these guys. But what, mm-hmm. what people don't see is all the no's. And understand, like, I think every entrepreneur receives that kind of no's. I know I do all the time, right? I, I, I tell founders, hey, you're going to go out and raise your first capital. Be prepared for at least 30 passes even if the idea is you think is really great, but even side, right. Two years after that, two years after getting over 30 no's, we only got one. Yes. Okay. We pitched what I felt like was every fund in the Bay area. And only one fund saw the company and said, this is awesome. And that was Trinity. Like, this is awesome. This is, we really like this. I'm like, really, you really like this? Cause everybody else doesn't like this. Like, no, no, We like this. We really like this. Like, Oh, it's amazing. Um, so, so what was the difference there? They just saw the vision. They saw, they you know, saw Trinity, really the impact on the industry. I guess a lot of people don't understand this industry and it's hard exactly. for them. To Trinity in particular had a really good insight into everything real estate because they were early investors in early real estate companies. Yeah. Um, and so, and most venture funds at that point, five, five and a half, six years ago, had not even started to think about real estate yet because the industry just seemed too capital intensive and weird and odd. So great. But, you know, this last round this earlier this year, we went in, literally pitched a fund that in the series B passed on us. And I remembered every single face in that room because you remember those things as a founder when people pass on you. And at the end of the pitch, they're like, this is an awesome business. How have we not seen this business before? Like, how did we miss you at the last round in the round before that? I was like, you didn't miss us. We pitched you. You passed on us. <laughs> Don't you love it? It's like, yeah, yeah. It all blends together. Now. So it, it can't be difficult. But then the Series D, this last round was not difficult at all. It was, we went out to raise $50 million. Um, and nine days later, that became $150 million. And we closed that out with KOTU, which again is one of those top three amazing tech IPO underwriters. And that was at a billion dollar valuation. And then the funds that we did not end up working with that were also interested at that time, they came back and made us an offer to invest another hundred million in the company at a much higher valuation, which was a 2.5 billion. So that's not Incredible. what Side is actually worth today. So Side, how, what, what was the difference in those uh, time time frame from the from the billion months. to the two point five billion? Three three months. Three months. Okay, I want to talk. I want to come back to that in a minute, but I know you're going to share another point. Well, so when you know when it rains, it pours. Look, Side is not worth two and a half billion dollars today. Our fair market value is probably more like eight to nine hundred million today, but because. They looked at side and said, oh, wait, you're 90% in California, 10% in Texas and Florida. You need to raise more than 15 million. You need to distribute this across the whole country. You need to get aggressive. You need to hire people everywhere. We need to go. Let's do this. Yeah. That is what motivated folks is, over, is that we had this discipline over the last five years to build the right business in the right way, even though it meant it was narrow and deep. And yeah. everybody kept telling me, oh, you need to show that you can be in more markets if you want to raise more capital. I always resisted that because it wasn't what felt right mm-hmm. company and it paid off. Yeah. And, and listening to those people that don't understand your business can be a big mistake a lot of times, right? You have to, you have to have conviction, which is to say you, you should be open to feedback and you should listen and you should let it bounce around in your head and be intellectually honest. But at the end of the day, you also have to be stubborn about what you know to be right and what you know to be the truth. Yeah. And then it does, and then you just have to do what's right, no matter what the consequences, right? Whatever, yep. follow, whatever follows will follow at that point. Uh, but, you know, you, you sort of have to say, here's what I believe is true. And what I believe to be true, the industry doesn't believe to be true. And that means we're going to have to run up against the grain. You know, side, we spent the last five years running against the grain of the industry. We were ignored. We were ridiculed. We've been, every people have, other brokerages have fought against us tooth and nail because 
with such a with such a threat to the status quo model, but in a way that actually increases the value created in the industry as opposed to extracts it. Yeah. It's a very hard thing to compete with. We've had all of that happen. And then what happens last week is we get named the company of the year by Inman. Uh, so it took five years of nobody getting it, nobody understanding, everybody making fun of it, you know, uh, not taking you seriously, uh, not giving you a seat at the table. And that's okay. You just continue to persist and do what you believe is right. Because you see signs all around you that it is, right? Yeah. You see the Michelle Kims who go from 20 to 200 and the Brett Jennings who go from 100 to a billion. Like these amazing partnerships you've established with great people and how they've grown and how they've helped people on their teams grow. It's a beautiful. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And that's how you know that you're doing the right thing, even though the industry is not there just yet. And then what's what's gradual becomes sudden very quickly in your company of the year. Yeah. Well, congratulations on, on that announcement. Um, yeah. And it's been fun to see, like, for instance, Brett Jennings, one of our customers as one of your yep. customers. Yeah, it's and I, how I, we I know, it's how we know because, you, because you brought it up. But yeah. It's how, it's how we know each other so well. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, I mean, there, there's a lot of overlap in our businesses, so it's it's really fun. And when I say that, in our customers, right? Yes, <laughs> not, yes. not necessarily in our business. So not in our product, uh, but certainly in our customers. Yeah, right? yeah, yes. So anyway, it's been it's been fun to to see, and and there's nothing nothing that makes you feel better as a as a CEO of a company to see your customers doubling their business every year or more. Nothing, right? nothing, yeah. nothing is better than that. Nothing is better than that, especially because that's the thing day one that you promised them, and you say, look. I don't know much about real estate, but I know what it takes to build a small business. I've done it. Like, I know what that looks like. I know how to cash flow that. I know how to set that up. I know what you have to do from a marketing standpoint. Uh, and I think that together, your real estate brain and our business brains and our technology brain, if we combine them, we can create this thing that didn't exist before and make something beautiful and wonderful. But you don't really know that that's possible. You just believe it. Yes. So to then go out and make it possible is not just feel good. It's also really relieving because you have this great obligation to the people who put their, you know, the Michelles who put their trust in you who say, hey, this is the livelihood of me and my family, but let's roll. Let's see. Let's see what happens. And for that to then actually work, ah, best feeling ever. Yes. Yes. So let's go back a little bit. You when it set out to raise fifty million dollars in your most recent and we raised two fifty rounds and you went up to two hundred and fifty million. You went up to a much higher valuation than you anticipated, I'm sure, which allowed you to bring in more money and not create as much dolution, right? That's quick. That's quick. So, which is amazing. Congratulations! I love I love stories like this. Um, one, one, one thing I wanted to talk about, I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are like, you know, you want to build this lasting company. I want to build this lasting company. There are a lot of entrepreneurs that are really about how quick can I build a company and sell it? Right. So, yep. so it's, it's really a different mindset, but one of the things I wanted to hit on is like with you guys now having raised money at a two and a half billion dollar option or two and a half billion dollar valuation, like selling is no longer really an option for you, right? No, or, no, or if no. so, only to certain buyers. So no, like nobody, option, nobody, could, nobody could afford to buy side. Yeah. yeah. So, so your option today is really, we're going to build this and at some point likely go public, I'm guessing. The, the, the only option has ever been for us to build a sustainable, meaningful enterprise that lasts the test of time. That was always the intention. It was always the motivation. I was never interested in doing anything but that. Uh, I always believed that this was a company that should be generational. Um, and I really wanted to go out and work to accomplish that. It is true that from a financing standpoint now, that's the only path forward for us. I love that. I love burning the boats. I'm a big burning the boats kind of person. <clears throat> um, I, I don't do half measures. I'm extreme what's one end or the other it's a switch on a dial it's like you're on or off yeah um that's just who i am that's how i uh, i tend to be and it's the only way i know how 
So others are different and there are different paths forward, but that's my own. But it is true to say that, yes, our only path forward now is to in, is to sustain independence. And that does mean that in the next few years, we'll take the company public. Yeah. So yeah. the only reason I want to point that out, I think there's just a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this. And, you know, every every time you bring in capital, you may have fewer options as far as that kind of stuff moving forward. But yeah. you knew where you wanted to go from the beginning. So you're right on that path. And, 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 we, and I would encourage all entrepreneurs listening to this to start with the same way. Start with the end in mind. Because they, if you know what your end scenario is, you can plan for it. So if you are trying to build a company that you get to like $20 million in recurring revenue a year, and then and, and you know that that's the ceiling on it because maybe the addressable market, the available number of customers are such that you can never get to more than $20 million. There's a lot of companies like that, right? Point solution type businesses. Uh, but if that's what you know you want to accomplish and do and you want to get to that point and then sell the business for like 50 to $100 million after five years, uh, five to call it eight years, um, then great. Now you know that you can only raise so much capital and now you know how much you have to grow every year and you can thread that needle. And it's a really important one to thread because if you're going to build a company that gets to $50 million, sorry, to $20 million in revenue with the intention of selling it for a hundred, then you can't raise more capital than say 30, 40 million. Right. Because if you do, you as the founder and your team are not going to make any money. It's going to all go to the investors. Right? Yep, exactly. So you, you, you have to think about those things really critically. Uh, uh, side, we raised relatively small amounts of capital uh, every single round before this one. And it was because it's all we really needed to fund the next phase. And that's how we've always thought about things. Like, What do we actually need to get to the next place? And let that be what guides valuation as opposed to maximizing for no reason. Yeah. So I know we're a little limited on time here, Guy. And, it, you know, I think listening to you is great for any entrepreneur. Um, so thanks for, thanks for coming in here and sharing this with us today. Um, I just have a few more questions with you. Um, one is like, where do you see this industry being in three to five years from now? Because you're obviously a visionary. You, uh, you know, you've set out on this mission to completely change what used to be the, the, you know, the traditional brokerage, I'll call it. Where do you think this is all going? Look, there's no more room for average in the industry. There's no more room for middle. Uh, you have, it's, 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 it's bifurcating, right? In two directions to budget and to, uh, on the one end of the spectrum is budget and the other is, is premium. And that's not price, that's service level and experience mm-hmm. um, and cost, like commission fee, not, it has nothing to do with the price of a home. Right. Or price of a price of a property, and and so you're going to have a lot of players that do the redfin thing, where they're like, hey, if you're going to work with one of the nine ninety four percent of agents that are part timers who do seventy percent of the transactions in the U S. every year and have a bad experience at two and a half percent commission, don't come work with redfin and pay us less, right? So have a bad experience, but for less money. That's the core value proposition there. And they're able to position that way as are companies like, you know, like Rex, who does like the, or Homey. It's like, oh, pay a flat fee and we'll list your home. Because the industry has allowed that to happen by deprecating the average service level that an average agent is able to deliver to the average client. Yeah, You know, um, 20 years ago in California, the average agent was doing 11 deals a year. Today, it's three deals a year. It's by design. It doesn't happen by accident. So that is has allowed real estate, um, the industry, to have a lot of players come in that are going to compete on budget. Budget experience, very DIY, but less cost. Less cost, right? Yeah. 
it's already happened. It's going to happen more. That represents what I call a commoditization of the agent. Yeah. It's where no two agents are different. It's like no two red agents are different. It's all the same, right? They're cogs in a machine. Uh, you just, you, you work with anybody. It's all the same. That is where the industry was heading really, really fast before side started to invest in our mission. Uh, because that is the status quo. That's what the big brokerages are doing every single day. They're not reversing course on it. They're just trying to extract more and more value faster before things catch up with them. But that's the one force that's informing where we're moving towards is a force towards the commoditization of agents, the reduction of commissions on a per agent basis, and lots more agents doing lots less, lot less deals each. The, that's that's where it's been, right? That's where that's that's where it's been. It's never been worse, and it's getting worse, and it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse um, because it's already baked. Like like that momentum, like the next five years, they're already kind of baked. So it's gonna get a bit worse before it gets better. It's gonna allow more of those interests to come in. But that stuff happens on, you know, 50-year horizons, not five-year horizons. It takes a long time for these forces to play out. Like, again, in California, it's 20 years to go from 11 deals an agent to three and a half, 20 years. The other force is a force that prior to side was organic and inherent in the industry already. It was already there. It just was not organized. And that's the team force. That's the top producer force. That's the entrepreneurial force. That is whoever presents that wave, the commoditization of brokerages, not the commoditization of agents. The brokerages try to commoditize the agents, but what's happened in the last 20 years is that those, with the rise of the internet and the ability of an agent to go direct to a client and the client to go direct to an agent, they've broken up that brokerage retail monopoly, that distribution yeah. monopoly. They've gotten really sophisticated about it more than the brokerages are. And they've been able to build their own companies within other people's companies. They're like exploiting the loophole uh, to satisfy their own interest and the interest of their clients and that of the public good. And that has happened nascently, organically, and in a way that was not at all organized. Side, of course, now is organizing that. We're investing behind it. Uh, We're really designing for it and in that way accelerating it all. And I am of the mind that if we do that well, if we continue doing that well, then in 10 years' time, instead of 70% of the transactions being done by part-timers, we're going to have an industry where 70% of the transactions are done by really great experienced agents and folks on their team who are maybe newer but are serious and are learning and getting mentored and apprenticed so that they can yeah. – so that. Instead of having 2 million agents, you're going to have 400,000 agents doing 6 million units a year. It's better for the consumer. It's better for the public interest. I personally am biased and believe that's going to get organized into thousands of local boutiques as opposed to five big national brokerage brands because it's those very brand structures that allow the part-timers to do all the business. So you have to dismantle that if you want to change things. But I do think there will still be – what you'll see in the market is that bifurcation – and you'll have you're either a really awesome agent that's a team that that is part that is this boutique company that is locally owned and focused and specialized, and you're getting a full commission and everything, and you're maybe half the business in the market, and then the other half of the business in the market are like androids and robots and agents that have been retrofitted into cyborgs at Redfin, um, you know, a you know AI assisted do it yourself chatbots and workflows where consumers are self-serving but paying less those are going to be your two things and it's going to be hard to say how much of total transaction volume each will present i'm of the mind that 70 percent will stay with agent assisted if the agents are excellent yeah yeah i i agree with with Pretty much everything you just said. I think there's definitely going to be fewer agents doing higher production, with, I mean, and they're going to be they're going to be on teams that are high producing. Yeah. You didn't used to have these businesses. I remember five years ago, guy, I was sitting in masterminds with the top teams in the country, 
And at that time, they were all talking about, you know, $100 million was the number. Well, you and I both, you and I both know we have multiple customers doing over a billion, right? Or or partners. And so like hundreds of millions is becoming commonplace for these teams. How are you going to compete with that as a solo agent when they're, when they're so efficient and just doing such a great job? A team always outperforms an individual and, and teams are how brokerages actually used to work back when they were, you know, 30 agents and there was one office. Yeah. Right. So in a lot of ways, it's a return to the past, to the golden days of real estate. The difference now, Brian, is you have the internet and the internet can connect all of what would have otherwise been these disparate single points, you know, uh, like beacons of light, yeah. little boutiques. They can connect them all to a powerful bargaining, um, a collective bargaining organization uh, that allows them to actually exert their own influence, which in my opinion is an influence that is much more aligned to the public good and the needs of the client. And that's where everybody should be investing. So obviously I'm biased, but that's what we're going to continue to do at side. And so far, so good. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I'm excited to, get into Utah as well. See you a little bit more often. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Excited to have you. Guy, thank you so much for joining today. It's been a lot of fun. Just congratulations on all of your success. Company of the year from Inman, two and a half billion, uh, just $250 million raise. Congratulations. That's all. The most most important stats for side are over 400 companies exist today that did not used to exist before. It's a beautiful, wonderful, love, uh, amazing thing. Over half of them are owned by women, which is way, way, way higher than the industry average for real estate company ownership. Uh, over 30% are minorities. Uh, we really uh, love making ownership more accessible to people. It's such an important foundational part of our mission. And that's what I am most proud of when it comes to site. It's not the big yeah. valuation or whatever, that's all means to an end. What really matters is that real people are now in a better position than they were before um, and they have more control, they have real ownership and that makes me feel good. So again, thank you for the time. It's always nice to be able to talk about like the history of the industry and why it is the way it is because these things can oftentimes be so surface level mm-hmm. that you say a lot of nothing. But, but going back to the fundamentals, uh, I think is so important. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And yes, absolutely. Without your 400 companies that you're partnered with to build this side, wouldn't be anything, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's what it's about. It's about solving problems for them. So you know, we can end it here at Inman when they're like company of the year side. My thing was, no, 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 we're all going up. It's not company of the year. It's companies of the year. Like these are all your companies. We just happen to connect them all. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Look forward to catching up with you and your team here in the very near future. Likewise. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. If you have an interest in a free seven-day trial of Sisu, go to sisu.co, S-I-S-U dot C-O. Make sure that you use the coupon code GRIT, that's G-R-I-T, to waive all your set of fees and receive a 10% discount on your subscription. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to subscribe, search GRIT, the real estate growth mindset on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. And with that, we'll catch you next time. Take care.